This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. My name is Michael Rich. I'm the executive vice president of the Rand Corporation, and I want to thank you for joining us this evening for this program in our distinguished speaker series. Uh, I first heard about uh, John Daisy. I was telling him, I think, almost exactly 10 years ago. I mean, possibly almost exactly to the day 10 years ago. Um, this was before I actually met him and before I, I knew his name. Uh, there was a search underway at the time here in Santa Monica for the new superintendent of the Santa Monica Malibu Unified School District. And someone who was participating in the early screening of the candidates sent me a message. And I, I don't have the message anymore, but I remember uh, a lot of what it said. It said something like, there's a candidate you have to meet. He answers every question with findings and statistics from Rand Corporation reports. <laughs> I have a feeling you're going to love him. <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time to myself, he's quoting Rand reports. You know, what's not to love? So that candidate turned out to be uh, John Daisy, and um, we did soon uh, meet. But, you know, in retrospect, I realized the circumstances of us uh, getting to know each other were not the most auspicious uh, for a friendship to develop. Uh, when he became superintendent in 2001, I was just starting a three-year tour as the chairman of something new at the time. Uh, we have a citizens' financial oversight uh, committee here in, in Santa Monica, Malibu, and I was the chairman. This was established by the school board at the insistence of the city council to make sure that the district strengthened its uh, financial management. I'm giving you, I see one of my colleagues from those early days, Chris Harding, is here. That's, I gave you the polite version of the charter of this. Um, and uh, I, I, but I did get the chance to work with John for several years in that uh, role, obviously along with many, many others. And uh, we worked on a lot of different issues, including two uh, parcel ta important parcel tax measures, one in 2002. People here in Santa Monica remember Measure EE. Narrow loss. Uh, then we went back 2003, Measure S. Narrow victory, very important for the district. And, and um, although the business between us always was purely financial, dealt with financial management and budget uh, things and so on, I was impressed that they were never really purely financial to John. And I learned that I could always count somewhere in the conversation, he would remind me that his job was to turn every child into a productive, well-rounded contributor to the community. And then every so often he'd remind me that my job was to help him do that. <laughs> and um, over, the over that time, I developed considerable respect for John. I think we did become uh, friends. And... Um, uh, I haven't been, as a result, I haven't been the slightest bit surprised by any of his achievements and advancements uh, since he's left Santa Monica. So he was superintendent here, Santa Monica Malibu, for five years, and he left in 2006. And he went to lead uh, Prince George's County public school system, which is in Maryland. It's adjacent. It's kind of wrapped around the eastern uh, part of Washington, D.C. From there, he became the deputy director of education at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and then, as we all know, he returned to the Los Angeles Unified School District last year as the deputy superintendent of schools. 
Uh, in 57 days from now, he will take over as the superintendent uh, of schools. Uh, LAUSD is roughly um, uh, six to seven times the size of Prince George's County, uh, that public school system, and which makes it about 70 times the size of the Santa Monica Malibu Unified School District. I think he probably knows these numbers. Um, it's hard, actually, to think of somebody that has gone as far as John Daisy in just five years. I think, as you'll see for yourself, he is one of uh, our nation's most dynamic uh, leaders in the field of American education, and it's just at a time when we need those kinds of uh, leaders. So uh, we're delighted to have him back at RAND. I'm a product of the Los Angeles Unified School District, so I'm delighted to have him soon at the helm of, of the school district. Now, our moderator uh, for this evening is uh, Lindsay Cosberg from RAND. Uh, Lindsay is, a, is our Vice President for External Affairs, and she herself actually has a long history of involvement in education policy matters. Before she came to RAND, she worked in the White House and at the Department of Education, part of the team that um, uh, enabled the pa achieved the passage of the No Child Left Behind uh, Act. So let me give you to Dr. John Daisy and Lindsay Cosberg. Let you get seated here. Um, as Michael suggested, we're really interested in asking questions tonight. So I'm not going to I'm not going to do much more than than kick off with a broad and big question, which is that you'll be moving down the hall on the 15th of April. And I'm wondering, as you're planning that move, um, what's the biggest challenge that you see for yourself? I, mean, I have to say that the first, and, uh, and I apologize, I have a cold. It's not that we've been yelling at union members all day. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I think the single greatest challenge is how to stabilize LAUSD in the midst of the kind of catastrophe of California uh, funding. Um, but, but more so, how do I use opportunities found in a budget crisis um, to fundamentally reshape this organization so that it actually serves students and parents um, as opposed to um, prevents opportunities. And, and that's, that's, that's probably how I see that, is the single greatest issue. So if you had to think about how much time you're going to spend focused on Sacramento and Washington, D.C., and the money coming from those places, where does that fit into your, your overall agenda and, and your job as superintendent? It fits pretty um, squarely in the middle of that. I've already been to D.C., been to Sacramento a number of times. Um, we are uh, just joined a small group of uh, superintendents who are going to um, work um, with our secretary to help think about <clears throat> the implications of the reauthorization of No Child Left Behind, uh, ESEA. And yes, they rebranded it. The yes. Elementary and Secondary Education Act. I should have said that. That's right. Um, uh, but more importantly is how do we actually help uh, lawmakers, uh, this is going to be my terms now, both um, uh, have the courage to pass the legislation necessary so that we can do the right things by youth in Los Angeles and in California and have our lawmakers understand the implications of not passing uh, pieces of legislation. And that's the whole basket of legislation from human capital reforms uh, to um, fiscal reforms um, to uh, facilitating kind of good, strong, um, and thoughtful accountability reforms. I want to 
pick up what you mentioned, which is the opportunity that lies in the budget crisis. And uh, having spent some time in Washington, You and I might be the only ones who see that tonight, <laughs> that's right. Well, well, fraud, waste, and abuse were always uh, three of the favorite terms in Washington, D.C. Um, but um, more than that, there's also size. Um, yep. And there is a question of funding to the school site versus question of funding to infrastructure for the district. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what you see as the cuts or changes that can be made at the district level to protect some of the funding that could go to the school sites? So, a great question. Um, my administration at the moment is in the process of both being formed and constructing the way that we're going to move forward. And so, very clearly, um, we know that the architecture of the framework is going to be <clears throat> to, I want to use the word dramatically because that would be an accurate description, downsize central and the middle layer, uh, so that supports um, and uh, fiscal um, move to sites. And the theory of action, of course, is that um, success is in the classroom. Um, students um, uh, have the right to be in front of the most effective teaching and teacher led by a school by the most effective principal consistently and persistently. And the system's responsibility is to both assure that and to make sure that we are not preventing that. Um, we need a central um, that is far more agile, um, far more responsive, uh, less involved um, and obsessed with compliance and much more with innovation. And that's really hard for a system that acts our size because we're like a government. So we do things well. We respond to emergencies really well. And there are a lot of emergencies. There's issues of community violence or, or school violence. There are issues of health and, and safety. Um, this is a very seismically active area, uh, gang issues. We respond brilliantly to those issues. We don't do necessarily such a good job when we actually want to improve instruction in the classroom. And so the notion is that actually has to be the work of the system. Uh, so um, there will be a very, very intense conversation about the exchange of high degrees of autonomy for high degrees of accountability um, with the resources at the site and side by side around the issue of high quality choice. I want to ask you, because we, we've had the opportunity to talk before about talent. Yes. And what you're describing requires a lot of talent. It requires talent at the school site, and it requires talent inside the district. And I'm curious how you see um, yourself and the district as a whole um, growing or finding, seeking out, rewarding the talent that it needs to bring innovation into the school site and into the district. So the All Youth Achieving Agenda in L.A., which is going to be launched um, with, with my team and my administration, is designed to be a talent magnet. Um, if you have uh, any interest in actually fundamentally altering the trajectory of youth, but particularly youth who live in circumstances of poverty, um, then we really want you to come to Los Angeles Unified. If you are in Los Angeles Unified and you are struggling with your skill sets <clears throat> to help every single solitary youth, and I've said this a hundred times, not some, not most, not all, but actually every one of them, um, uh, make sure there's no violation to their fundamental civil right um, to high-quality achievement, but, but you're willing to grow, we're with you. If you're inside of LAUSD and you really don't quite buy the all-kids agenda because there's so many problems, you got to go. I just can't have you near the kids. Um, 
Uh, and we're going to be really clear about that. So that requires a strong performance management system, hence a new teacher evaluation, administrative evaluation being actually almost completely done and ready to be launched next year. Um, a strong performance management for central um, administration so that your job actually is one of service. Um, and um, a notion that um, talent can be both um, excavated inside the system, because I think a lot of it's been driven underground, um, or at least not uh, brought to the surface or recognized. Um, but some of it's going to require the fact that not everybody is in the right position that they're in now. Do you have anything close to the flexibility that you need in order to make determinations on that basis right now? Uh, we, um, no. Um, <laughs> um, what I was going to say, though, was there are a great number of tools and opportunities which we simply don't use. <clears throat> and we intend to use every one of them. So if, if the, the fundamental purpose is that um, youth actually get to achieve at high levels. Nothing can stop that. Um, and the system's responsibility, therefore, is to make sure that nothing internally um, uh, uh, if it thwarts that and everything facilitates it. Then the process we're going to lead, which we've started already, is that, so here's the basket of central issues around both, um, let's just use talent, for example. So traditionally, the system comes up and says, well, we have to negotiate these issues. That's, that's true. We honor labor, we have a very strong labor history uh, and totally deep respect. But we're just not going to hope that that's the only way it works. So we're going to use a four-sided strategy of regulation and negotiation and legislation and litigation. Um, but not one of those um, is going to be left as, well, we really shouldn't try that. Um, if it is what has to happen, then all four tools will be brought to bear. You stepped into LA Unified around the same time that an important piece of litigation was emerging from at least the Superior Court level. A number of schools uh, represented, and students, I believe, represented yep. by the American Civil Liberties Union and others, public council and others, had sued the district um, and essentially upended in, in the judgment the seniority uh, process for deciding who stays at the end of the year when there has to be a reduction in force. You uh, negotiated, I believe, a settlement agreement. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how that's playing out for you, what kind of change that's ushered in, either at the 45 schools that are covered by the, by the decision, and also potentially for the rest of the district. It's highly controversial. Um, you're absolutely right. I came to the district. I read the lawsuit. Um, I said, um, this is crazy if we actually don't take a lead on this issue. So I uh, did um, uh, um, facilitate the construction of the settlement agreement, got all but one partner on board in the settlement agreement. <coughs> uh, teachers Union was unable to come and be a partner on this issue went to the courts, um, testified for a day and a half. Um, we won the entire victory. And um, the judge found a constitutional violation uh, by uh, simply using seniority uh, to decimate schools um, during rifts. Um, and even more importantly, how rifts take place at these schools and inside of this. Huge, actually fundamental landmark change in the rights for kids around this issue. Um, we were uh, very pleased. Of course, now it's in the Court of Appeals. Um, and it, and uh, it will be in the Court of Appeals. And um, if the decision uh, is rendered to uphold in the Court of Appeals, 
uh, it now has jurisdiction in California. If the decision moves to the Ninth Circuit, you have now multi-state jurisdiction. It is but one step. Um, we would desire a negotiated agreement. Um, if it's not possible, then we live under the rule of law, and we will look to the bench um, to help us on this issue. And they're ultimately looking at civil rights and the civil rights of students of high poverty backgrounds yes. and, and ethnic minority backgrounds. Do you want like two seconds on the form? Sure. So basically Absolutely. what um, it does is it says that um, uh, rifts disproportionately reduction in forces um, disproportionately harm the most impacted schools. Uh, schools of highest poverty, schools of greatest circumstances of, um, of impact for students. So the judge's order takes a formula which we created which says we will rank order every school in the district and we will top, take the top 25 schools that meet the following four criteria that are, um, have the highest three-year average turnover rate, um, the highest poverty, um, students uh, in schools... Uh, that have um, the fastest growth in achievement. So these are high impact um, and currently lowest performing. So if you are the lowest performing, fastest improving, highest impact school, you get sheltered. And therefore, you cannot take seniority and riff anybody out of that school. And you must pass over those schools and go to the next schools in the system. And you can't just go to the next 25 schools and create the same problem there. So the tail end of the agreement was, okay, you take a district-wide average of RIFs, and if the district-wide average is if this reduction in force takes place, um, and about 6% of uh, faculty in every school will get RIFT, you can go to the next school if it's under 6%. So if it's 5%, a RIFT can occur at that school. If that school is 10%, you must pass over that one as well. So that you actually try to create a more equitable situation. Two points. One is, I would prefer not to implement this agreement at all. Because implementing the agreement means that we don't have enough money to be hired. We should be hiring teachers, not letting teachers go. So we don't want to do this. On the other hand, I would far more be preferred to be having a conversation um, not about just seniority, because that's a quality-blind decision. Uh, it would be much better if we actually could have the decision about the quality of the active instruction of the person. But at the moment, we still have room to go to get that one. So I want to ask you a question sure. um, that I think is on the minds of a few people here, which is, as Michael described, you had been in a terrific role at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and you were driving the teacher uh, excellence movement, um, funding projects here in Los Angeles and around the country. And um, your job today is full of a lot of really big challenges and a lot of public accountability. And the statistic, I think it's four superintendents in five years, you know, rattles around in my head. And I'm wondering what it is that made you want to do this in the first place. <laughs> Um, I could give some smart answer, like um, I had missed a therapy session or, <laughs> or something like that. But if you really want, I mean, the God's honest answer is that um, this is the second largest school system in the United States. Uh, this is a school system in profound impact. Um, and if you want to go from Huntington Park High School um, to Boyle Heights, and you want to see where kids live, both under the freeway, if you want to see where kids um, have uh, little or no hope unless we do something for them, that is what is 
an obligation. I'm a white male of a whole host of invisible privilege in this country. And you've got two choices, in my opinion. Now, one of those choices is that you can um, kind of enjoy and use that knapsack of um, unearned privilege, um, or you can do something about making sure that every step in your being uh, brings advantage um, to others. Now, it just happens to be, and I choose the latter, um, but it just happens to be that um, uh, it's inside of a system that has so many challenges that kind of like the little joke is, you know, it's the real hurt locker if <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of the work because there are external factors um, which are going to be painful. There are internal factors that are going to be painful. Um, and I guess I believe that one of my responsibilities is to steer the system's focus exactly back where it belongs, um, which is the fact that these students come to school, they don't care about a school, um, a state budget crisis. They actually believe that the dream is you're going to make good on the fact that I will graduate college and workforce ready. And that's exactly what we plan to do. So I want to ask you a little bit about some of those other actors who sure. you will be bumping into. Um, and the May, excuse me, March 8th, even before you, uh, even before you move down the hall, um, there will be an election and there may well be changes or at least there will be decisions um, that affect the school board. Correct. And that school board uh, has a profound effect on your life uh, now and it yes. will going forward. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, not so much the politics of who's going to win and who's going to lose, that's not the focus, but how does a superintendent interact with the school board? How much can you control? How much do they control? What is your relationship to one another and, and what are the challenges you're going to have in, in working with, with any board? So for context, four of the seven seats are up for election in Los Angeles Unified on the 8th of May, which of course is a majority. Um, Michael should be glad I was able to do my math very quickly on that one. Um, and um, they hire and fire me. Um, I took my contract with um, no buyout. You simply, 24-hour um, notice. Um, I don't want... Uh, to be serving if you are not wanted or can do the job. And I also, the other side is true, and that is I won't stay um, if a board uh, makes it impossible to actually do the job. So it's a high risk but high leverage, um, and I believe in that. And besides, the company, the tax base of the company shouldn't be uh, buying anybody out. Um, you propose policy and you propose um, the way of doing the business to the board. Um, the board provides you the opportunity to do the job within their policy framework. So it's very important that you are highly aligned around policy. Um, this is a board that I was attracted to for the very policies it had set into place. This is a system I was attracted to that if all of those policies were leveraged to a maximum, this is um, some fairly astonishing work um, is about to take place, and, and I'm excited about that. Converse is, um, all it takes is a couple of those members, um, and we would have a very different direction, and um, I'd have to determine whether I could um, continue to work there. I just want to ask you about some of the other characters you're going to be sure. working with. Although, thank you. Although I think it should, I think... Um, inferred in your question was something that um, I should be quite clear about, and that is 
the current Board of Education has provided a policy platform for very, very powerful reform. And other people can take those places, but it's going to be that policy platform that matters, not necessarily the person. So, it, it, and, and this is, I, I think, something that may be helpful for, for everyone. How does the superintendent interact with the board? How will um, they? They've got offices yes. and staffs of, yes. of their own. Each board, each board member has a field office and a district office, and they have staff, a chief of staff, and they have policy advisors. Um, and uh, it's a system that, you know, is a $6 billion uh, non-construction budget or operating budget and the largest public works project in the United States, public, 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 um, uh, school public works project, um, is bar none. Actually, we now eclipse the big dig in terms of the amount of um, dollars we're spending on schools, and it's an astonishing project. If you think about the number of schools and seats we've opened um, for centuries where kids did not have seats, literally, over a century. Um, and uh, they set policy that affects 800,000 lives. So it's a very significant role. Um, you meet with board members uh, probably daily. You set up a ritual and a routine, um, uh, but you can never meet with um, uh, more than three at the same time, and it's a violation of the law. So one of the roles is very much working amongst board members, helping them come to consensus on my and my team's agenda. At the same time, understanding their concerns so that you have a functional um, but, des uh, but much more desirable harmonious relationship about how to handle issues. Um, it works best when the board courageously backs the policies that they set into place and allows me to completely do it unfettered. It works worse when uh, you have divergent policies and they want to run the system at the same time. So there are other people who would like to run the system, um, and uh, <laughs> uh, and, yes. and uh, um, I, the most prominent, I think, for the public is probably the UTLA, the, the 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 teachers union. But they're not alone. There are actually a number of unions seven. that uh, have a place seven that have a place inside of the district. Yes. Um, so in addition to your seven board members, um, you also have uh, an enormous group of stakeholders and. I was wondering if you could explain and, and illuminate folks and let us know a little bit about how those relationships work uh, amongst amongst the unions themselves and, and with the district. So um, labor is very, very strong um, in California and very strong in Los Angeles. And almost every employee um, is represented or unionized. Um, uh, all of our... Uh, you can imagine all the groups, so all the secretaries um, and office support staff, they have their own union. The teachers have their own union. Um, all of the principals and administrators have their own union. All of the cafeteria workers have their own union. All of the uh, custodians and uh, building and ground support um, have their own union. Uh, Teamsters um, represent a group of people. Um, they have their own union. And, and, and each of these also have a large union structure also inside of California, and very powerful structures um, inside of California. So it's both about being really clear about where I'm going to lead. Um, my style is to have a hand outreached all the time, but you don't take your other hand off the steering wheel. 
or you will become completely lost and the place will be rudderless. We prefer not to fight, but um, the desire is to have robust, kind of legitimate, honest uh, dialogue about what's best, realizing that at least there are seven separate entire different agendas about what's best because they represent a group of people whom they take dues from to represent their interest and they have to actually benefit the system and help youth at the same time. Um, some of the greatest dilemma is about their desire to affect policy and how they work with board members, um, how their desire is to have the best deal for their membership. And um, probably the most um, difficult for me is when one a labor body's interest conflicts with another union's interest. Those are the most difficult and thorny issues. Um, so being very honest and having people in, you probably meet uh, all the time. I mean, I think you probably, I probably manage 30 to 40 phone calls a day between various labor leaders. Um, so uh, I don't think there's any trick to it except for being totally above board. Uh, my rule of thumb is no surprises on either side. Um, if you're going to beat us up in the press, tell me ahead of time. And remember that kids watch the way we behave in public. And if you want to behave that way in public, uh, I'm not going to join you in that case. Um, but I'm certainly not going to be shy about what I think is right or wrong for kids. So I want to ask you about those kids, because we've talked a lot about the grown-ups. And um, I, I, um, Michael had referenced the success that you oversaw in Prince George's County. Um, there are certain populations that form... And the, in this town. Yes, to a part. Very proud of this. Um, <laughs> there are certain students who form the wrong side of the achievement gap. And this is normally, typically, students of color. Yes. Uh, students with limited English proficiency. Yes. And students with disabilities. And I would love if you could talk a little bit about how it is that in the second largest district in the country, um, you see yourself and others in, in the district setting out to tackle what has been a historic challenge for, um, for these groups that have struggled to achieve uh, at, at high levels. So without a huge policy speech, this is about access, this is about equity, and this is about uh, agency. So um, the first issue um, is an unfailing and, quite frankly, non-negotiable belief that all children can achieve at high levels. And I am not talking about the very, very tiny, tiny percentage of children who are profoundly um, uh, um, handicapped, um, hospitalized, etc., we work with those students. It's a blessing to be able to work with those students. But when people say students have challenges, I'm talking about 99% of everybody else. And people want to say, yeah, but 20 and 30% are in special ed. Garbage. Um, it, is, it is the whole um, of the student body. So this issue about belief, first and foremost. And not many people will walk up to you and say, I actually just don't believe a lot of kids can learn. But you have to start checking behavior. And so for so many kids, the issue is, who they get to be in front of, um, the quality of that instruction, and what they get to get into. Um, so many youth are given orange drink, not orange juice. And that is a very serious problem. So in California, we have this thing called the A through G course requirements. You could not believe the number of students who are systematically guided, prevented from, or moved out of courses that carry an A through G credit. 
A um, lot of reasons. Um, they're not ready for it yet. Uh, it'll harm their self-esteem uh, to uh, uh, issues that um, you couldn't even believe when I watched this happen. So those students comprise almost all students who live in circumstances of poverty. Well, poverty is not destiny, and it sure as heck is not going to be destiny inside of LAUSD. So the first thing is removing barriers to those courses. So if students are not in algebra, I don't mean like everyday math or principles of algebra or preparation for algebra or introduction to algebra. Um, these are all courses currently on the books. Not one of them, by the way, carries credit for algebra. Okay? So the kid is either getting algebra or not getting algebra. And if they're not getting algebra, I don't need you teaching. So this is not interpersonal. This is actually their right around this issue. Um, and what we find out is when they do get algebra, and the earliest they get algebra, they tend to do actually, scary as it can be, really well in algebra. When they don't get algebra, they don't do so well in algebra. Um, <laughs> it sounds actually bizarre, but we do things like um, how students behave. Um, what percentage of their homework are they completing, are determinants about whether I will actually assign you an algebra course. Um, access to high-end courses, such as AP, mm-hmm. equally kind of um, uh, insidious would be the word I would use in terms of the way that students are allowed in or out of that. So part of this is going to be simply removing barriers. Um, and then the second part of that is building the capacity to teach. Um, not everybody teaches everything well, and not everybody teaches everything well at the part of their career. Fine. There, we said it. Now, stop worrying about who is better at this and who's worse at that and how fast everybody can get much better at that skill set. Um, so kind of the deliberate improvement of instruction. Those two issues have proven historically, both in my own life and in the lives of very successful school systems in this country, to be instrumental and non-negotiable about helping close gaps. So I want to ask you across, um, if my numbers are right, more than 860 schools in the district, how do you improve instruction for all of those kids in all of these diverse neighborhoods? How, how do you do it? Um, one way is that we're going to, this whole, there's this vast middle layer of bureaucracy um, that uh, we have the, probably the single greatest issue in front of us is how we're going to redesign the middle so that supports go directly to schools. Um, so two things that um, we know. I can't get better. I was unable to get better as a teacher unless you told me how to get better. And this notion of understanding how to get better um, is an obligation of the system. So evaluation is just one tool to that process. But I can't have a good performance review if the performance review is designed to tell me how clean my classroom is, um, is designed to tell me if I have a nice tone, um, and avoids any conversation whatsoever about the technical skills of pedagogy and assessment. And at the moment... We have an evaluation system that is entirely devoid of any conversation about instruction. So, um, and then second of all is it's an intensely private act. So if I'm going to want to observe your instruction, which is the only way to actually legitimately give you feedback on your instruction, you have to know well in advance that I'm coming into the classroom. 
Um, the rest of the time, the door is shut, you know, kind of stuff over the door. Um, and it's, I don't know if many of you have been in, in schools of late, but the little teeny tiny window covered with all manner of decor. And it's a very, very private issue. Well, I've got to tell you, there's not very many professions I know in the world where this is such a private act. I mean, pilots don't sneak a 747 under the runway at LAX. It's a very public event. Um, you know, trial lawyers don't actually try their case in the judge's chambers. They do it in, in a public courtroom in front of a jury. Um, the act of getting better at instruction can really only legitimately happen, which is what we want to have happen. This isn't about I got you. It's about how I help you in, in a public way, um, which means I have to find where instruction is taking place at, at levels where kids are succeeding wildly beyond expectations. Because if I can understand and use a good evaluation system, not only am I being responsible for people who are not doing a good job, I'm able to find people who are doing a great job and provide access to those people um, so that I can learn by seeing that. So I think a lot of folks really get, have been very consumed by this issue of how do we use multiple measures around teacher and a leadership performance. Um, it is to do quality control, because if you're not getting better, you shouldn't be there. Um, and you shouldn't be transferred somewhere else, you should be out. But it's far more about how do I help you systemically get better, which is my obligation, and for these remarkable places, how do they become very public so I can learn from them? So I want to ask you about some of the remarkable places and whether they're in LA Unified or, or beyond. Um, what are the places that you have found to be remarkable yeah. and that if you could use them as an example to show and not tell, but to show someone um, how, you, how you create the achievement that, that you're striving for. What, what, what are the examples? Yeah, I can think of um, dozens and dozens inside of Los Angeles Unified um, at the moment. So I'm going to pull out three examples that come to my mind. I didn't know you were going to ask that question. But um, uh, so one is like 99th Street Elementary School. Um, not that anybody knows about 99th Street Elementary School, but I'm just going to mention that particular place. And there are many others like that. I just used one because I just happened to recently have visited that particular school. What are the characteristics around this place? You don't walk in that door as a youth without every single adult who surrounds you being very clear about what they expect of you and how high those expectations are and an absolute unshakable belief that you'll get there. And it just, it surrounds you. You can't escape it. Um, culture, but a defined culture. You have a principal who knows what instruction is and how to improve it. Um, you have adults in the school who are willing to do whatever it takes to help the next colleague get really good at their game. Um, you have parents who contribute in the way that they're able to. So I think everybody's waiting for me to say, and you have this unbelievable parent engagement. You don't. Your parents who are barely holding on to three families sometimes in the same two-bedroom apartment, hoping that they don't lose another job so they're evicted, and so that they come when they can. But what they know is that the school is doing its job and that they are helping parents know what to do at home. And um, the, the kind of thing about helping parents very early on know the skill of story retell. You know, read out loud. You know, most parents know that kids should be reading something. Well, that actually doesn't do a whole lot. What really helps is read the story. Now tell me what you read. Retell is a very potent part of early literacy acquisition. 
Um, we tell parents that if you are like sitting around the house and you're cooking, read the recipe aloud. Make as much verbal um, interaction with students in your um, sons and daughters uh, and guardians in your home as possible. Um, so it's not necessarily that parents have this overwhelming engagement. It's that they've reached out to them. Um, and then lastly, in schools like this, every penny that's spent is focused on the mission of that school. Um, so you don't really have a large variation around that. Um, I would tell you um, another aspect in these schools, and I'm thinking of a high school uh, and a middle school I just visited, and that is um, if you're going to go to that school, uh, if you've been transferred, uh, you don't go into that school and think that you're going to behave in any way except how that team believes in. There's a very strong ethos about what adult behavior is and how adults act in the school. We're not talking about like, you know, cult mentality here. What we're talking about is that we don't waste time on ridiculous conversations in faculty meetings. We are very interested about how do we draw as much knowledge out about this assessment as possible. We spend time understanding instruction. And um, schools are clear that when people want to transfer in, um, they ask them. And they interview them, which is totally permissible. And they make it really clear, you will not be comfortable here. Don't come onto this faculty. And the principals are, are, are um, persistent and consistent about providing feedback for you to get better. And if you're not getting better, um, being quite clear that we're documenting you that you can't stay here. Those are very clear in those schools. So I've had the pleasure of visiting 99th Street. Oh, you have? I have. Um, I did not it, know that. It, it, it is fabulous. Um, it's one of the uh, the schools supported by the mayor's partnership, and I actually had the opportunity uh, to ask the principal what was different about her experience as an administrator in the partnership from her experience as, I think, an assistant principal uh, in a traditional um, school. And uh, it's interesting to me because it was that middle that you're talking about. She pointed to the support that she had from the superintendency structure in the partnership as an empowering and enabling and assisting force. And she also said that she stopped taking no for an answer. Um, some, right. some, <laughs> some magical thing happened to her, uh, and she was imbued with a sense that she could just keep pushing and getting what she needed. And I'm curious, um, do you have thoughts about how you break down the current middle to give folks something that, that resembles what is it? Is it Miss Washington? Is that uh, she's the, yeah. the principal? What, what she's got going on? I, I was also just going to, um, I want to answer your question, but another um, thing I'm watching, which is fascinating to me, is charter schools that are co-located on the same property as a non-charter public school. So you have a non-charter public school and a charter public school. This co-location event is having um, a kind of a stunning dynamic that's taking place around growth. So I, I had another school in mind. Synergy was the other one I was thinking about um, uh, when I went there. So um, the answer to your question is not slowly. So um, pace actually is a four-letter word in education. Um, and that upping the pace is a very large four-letter word about pace. And the reality is we don't really have the luxury of going slower on this issue. I am um, comfortable with the fact that my leadership team will make mistakes. And if they are making mistakes as a result of the pace of rapid improvement, that is a whole lot better set of mistakes as long as we don't repeat them than making the mistakes about um, allowing the system to grind us to a halt. Forces in the system 
are perfected at grinding it to a halt. And I want the same courage that you exhibited, that we talked about in those principles, I want the system to say, absolutely not. Sorry, the answer is not, that's not okay answer. That has to happen. I just had a faculty meeting this afternoon where I met with the faculty of a high school, very good high school, who feels completely constricted at every level to do the things it wants to do. And most people say, you know, high schools don't, you know, they're kind of stuck, they don't want to move. These are people who are talking about the types of changes you could only dream of in a book um, that, people, that you could never imagine they want to do it. So I said, what is the problem? And they listed these four problems. I said, so why are you just doing that? And there's this fear of being in trouble that is so unhealthy. And I was like, well, so, so let's be honest here. How long do you think it's going to take someone to actually come out and find you um, <laughs> in a system this large? I mean, it took me an hour and a half to drive to your school. Um, and I'm just saying, it's like this kind of release around this stop fear. And we're talking about breaking the law. What we're talking about is like doing the right thing and stop asking for permission and just lead with what you know you can do. My responsibility, however, is to remove those who are actually thwarting that from happening. So I'm, I'm going to turn to the audience in two seconds, but you had mentioned co-location mm. of different school types mm-hmm. uh, on a single campus. And the, the one of the policies that I, I suspect attracted you to, um, one of the district policies and, and board decisions that was very bold, was to create a public school choice That's right. uh, option and structure um, to handle not only the flow of new schools coming online within the district, um, but also to address some of the schools that have um, failed, um, even with an injection of resources and help, have failed to demonstrate the kind of performance that they need to. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the role that you see the public school choice um, process and phenomenon playing in, in the district going forward. It's not a perfect policy but it's been an amazingly catalytic policy. So um, I, I actually take the words, which I believe strongly, from Judge Heiberger when he handed down the decision. If we wait for perfect solution, um, good is lost. And getting better is far more important than perfection. So the notion of waiting for a perfect way at this, um, the board simply didn't wait for perfect. So... We have um, a policy that basically says that every new school that opens up, which is actually going to end very soon, we have about one or two more years of new schools, then we finish construction and we go to renovation, which is the next whole cycle. But the whole-scale opening of new schools is coming to a close in L.A. We have about 39, 40-something additional new campuses that will open in the next two years compared to the 100 or so that we've already opened. Every brand-new school that opens up and every school that is deemed is, is consistently underperforming, our lowest chronically underperforming schools, go through a process called public school choice where anybody is invited to write a plan to run the school. And um, the plan are then brought before a whole series, and, and these are not like little plans, these are massive <laughs> plans and guidelines. Um, you get a spec and you write to run the school. And you could be a charter. You could be a group of teachers in L.A. Unified. Uh, You could be a group of teachers from outside of L.A. Unified. Uh, The plans are vetted. The plans are then brought before a review committee. The plans are then brought to the senior leadership team. And a recommendation is brought to the Board of Education, who votes to accept our recommendation 
Um, and if that's the case, those who, that's who runs the schools. Uh, and then there is a school review process for those schools that open up. Has it had an enormous effect, as you might uh, imagine? So some people who are vehemently against this call this public school giveaway as opposed to public school choice. Some people who have been vehemently for this have said this is um, about time that parents have the right for high-quality choice uh, in a way that is probably authentic and legitimate. Uh, people who are conflicted about it um, have said that, yes, that makes sense for low-performing schools. It doesn't make sense for schools that haven't even started yet. So you have kind of a whole range around this. What clearly has happened in the short period of time is that uh, we have vastly larger partners uh, with different models running um, opportunities in schools. And it's not just all going to charters. What we're watching, and I think this is actually, uh, in my opinion, a fantastic dynamic, is that we have had groups of teachers who are saying, okay, this is the plan I want, but I can't actually do the right thing under my current contract. So I actually need a thin contract, and I need these degrees of freedom. And that has set up a very important dialogue about why, if these teachers get these freedoms, do these teachers not get these freedoms. And we're going to have to wrestle through that, that very issue. Um, when I came on board, we're about to go through the second round of this, and we just announced the third round. I was very concerned about the criteria which identified a low-performing school. So when the first criteria came up, you know, I, I, like you, we can read papers, we can see out of the, you know, 800 traditional campuses, we had three low-performing schools. It's like, okay, that, that doesn't even pass the, like, the smell test. Um, so we've quadrupled um, by using the right criteria at this point. So there'll be 70-something schools going through choice in the next round, just on the internal schools. And I, once again, I think this is going to have to be watched very closely, um, just like our next month rollout of our value-added scores for all of our school district schools. We're going to produce a value-added score for every school and one for every teacher as ways to us think about informing the national debate, especially on reauthorization and turnaround. Okay, we're going to turn, I think, to the audience for questions. Audience, if you have a question, please raise your hand and myself for my... When you have the microphone, by the way, you have the question. Right. Uh, I have the first question over here. I'm very impressed with everything you've said, and I'm very hopeful. However, having lived in Los Angeles for over half a century and putting three sons all the way through uh, the L.A. school system, I have a concern. UTLA. My impression in the half a century I've watched schools here is that the union can be a big obstacle. Uh, you've said sort of good words about strategy and all this and that and so on, but some fraction of the teachers in UTLA will feel threatened yes. by what you're doing. Yes. And my impression is the union leadership does a very good job of representing that fraction of the teachers. So could you say a few more? To the extent you could be frank in a public forum, 
could you say a little more to give me a warm feeling <laughs> about how you're going to be able to co-opt UTLA? So I'm not interested in co-opting UTLA. I am very interested in saying that this is where the district is going to go. We'd like you to be a partner, but we're not going to not go there. So um, that actually isn't a, that isn't a battle cry. That isn't like a shot across the bow. That is, this district has one mission and one mission only, and that is to um, do exactly what I just said before in the interview. And so we need you to be a partner there. I fundamentally believe that UTLA, United Teachers of Los Angeles, um, have an overwhelming majority of their membership that is starving for reform leadership. Um, and because I see them every day. This is not like I think this. I meet thousands of teachers and remarkable ones at that. And they are starving for a reform leadership. Um, and it's not as simple as the leader. There are structures inside of UTLA that are really kind of crazy. And, and I say that respectfully. They are crazy because they don't work for either the schools or the membership. Um, they have a moment in time. And the thought of LA leading the nation in a reform done with labor uh, is probably, you know, pie in the sky. I actually think it's distinctly possible, but it's going to be a set of choices. Um, what won't be um, a choice is not moving forward. So love to do it collaboratively. Would actually like to do it in very bold, um, side-by-side with labor. Um, but I'm not going to actually um, have to turn around and say to kids, uh, sorry, it didn't work out for you. I'm not going to do that. Now, you don't know who your UTLA negotiating counterpart will be. So the union president vote was decided to be decided today, actually. Um, I did learn um, before I walked in here uh, that it was not decided, uh, so that we're going to face a runoff. Um, so no one candidate won uh, the vote. Uh, I also found out that in every um, leadership position but one, there's going to be a runoff. Um, so that's going to be a very um, important dynamic um, that's taking place around that. All I am convinced is, is that uh, this door will be opened and this arm will be stretched out in a partnership um, for both membership and kids. A question to the speaker's right. Thank you. I wonder if, if you can do your job without preschools. I understand that studies show that for every dollar spent in preschool, there's a, either a $2 or a $15 return. I'm sure most of the people here send their children to preschools, and so they come to school with a huge advantage. Can you overcome this disadvantage without having universal preschool? I cannot. I cannot overcome the growth that I and my team will make up. But I cannot overcome that at the, at the pace that will give all kids a level playing field so that they're reading on grade level by the end of third grade without preschool. But particularly preschool for youth who live in circumstances of poverty. Um, it's no different um, in my mind than saying, will all kids actually graduate college and workforce ready if I deny wholesale groups of youth from being in lab courses? or high-end courses in high school, not going to happen. The difference is I can control the latter, and I actually can't control the former because we don't fund preschool out of the, my budget. I depend on LA Up, thank God for them. 
I depend on small streams of money, but it doesn't come anywhere near that. Universal preschool, just like universal health screening, should be an obligation of a city to wrap itself around its public schools. Next question in front. I think many of us will feel that we failed our students. Uh, and I'll pick up on a couple of words that were mentioned initially in the presentation. One was uh, responsiveness, flexibility, and then later on innovation. Is it possible that we are so large with a $6 billion budget um, 862, 800, 860 schools, a population in our school district, I believe somewhere between 600 and 700,000 students. Add on to that the teachers, the administrations, the gardeners, the, the bus drivers, and so on. We probably are in excess of a million um, um, uh, individuals uh, within the school district. Oh, yeah. Are we, are we not too big to fail, but too big to succeed? Is it possible to think in terms of breaking the school district up into manageable sizes? It's a great question. I think that we could be very much so too big to succeed if we continue to, we will be, if we continue to operate in the same structure that we're doing. Uh, so um, this will be as much a test for Central to redesign itself as it will be for schools and teachers to rise to the occasion of a reform agenda. Um, or said another way, uh, if we don't get um, thoughtful um, decentralization, um, and I think a lot around the issue of franchise um, right, then we won't be successful at it. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Question, question to the speakers back and the right? Yep. Um, I've heard a lot of talk about instructional minutes and instruction and what you're going to do with um, the teachers, and I appreciate that, and I think you're headed in a fabulous direction. My question pertains to food services. Mm -hmm. um, LA Unified is the largest feeding institution in the world, actually, even bigger than New York. That's correct. They've got more students. LA Unified feeds more. That's correct. Um, one of the things that I've seen is that there's not as much access to food as there should be, um, and not enough credence is given to time for the kids to eat and healthy menus. What, what direction, I, I haven't heard anything about that. So what direction do you have in mind for food services? So um, one is to end furloughs so that students can go on a full day calendar. Right now we have a shortened school year. Everybody thinks furloughs, and rightfully so, is, oh, my God, they're not getting their classes. In L.A., for 80% of the kids, furloughs means no food. Okay, we feed them two meals a day and a snack, and in most of our youth, that is their food for the day. Um, so it's actually a, a dead serious thing, which I, I get from your question. You understand that as well. I think we're making very, very, very good strides on the health of the choices, I don't think we're making very good strides on um, the time uh, to eat around that case. And that is, quite frankly, an absolute uh, money issue um, because that is governed by a contractual obligation inside of the school. We're going to lengthen the school day in order to provide me longer time because I'm not going to cut any more time out of instruction to increase food um, service. I'm just not going to do that. I've already got myself too nailed in at the moment. I need a longer day and a longer year. What about something like a backpack dinner plan for those kids who don't eat? I mean, there are kids that leave Friday afternoon. 
Yep. You're absolutely right. We're going to need to look to the philanthropic and and giving community to help us do that. We certainly have no means with a $408 million budget shortfall um, to go in another direction. I think it's a, that um, along with um, that schools become community places for families to eat rather than we just we feed students. So one of the things that we see happening in lots of schools is that um, parents come pick up, eat, and that's when we actually capture this whole opportunity of engagement around that. Um, doing that at scale, of course, quite frankly, is dollars, dollars that neither the state has nor we have. But, I mean, your points are so well taken. A question, question to the speakers back? Yes. This is our, I think we have time for this last question. No, one more. Oh, you're going to be kidding. Um, Dr. Dacey. Uh, you guys are easy. You should see a board meeting. <laughs> Twice in your presentation, you talked about graduating students, college, and workforce ready. Correct. And, and that leads me to ask, what role do you see multiple pathways playing in your vision for LAUSD? Um, we actually have a strong, I would say a very strong infrastructure in place around multiple pathways. What we're struggling to do is to make sure that actually all youth can access those pathways. Um, what for me, is uh, a lot of times people want to get right to this debate is, well, actually, we need good workers, and not every, kid, not every kid is made to go to college. My response to that is, just don't make that choice for my kid. Um, so if not every kid is made to go to college, that's their choice, as long as the choice is that I could have gone to college. So I am totally fine with the idea that every, every youth will choose to go to college, I just will not be part of a conversation that prevents that from being a choice to go to college. So when I say college and workforce ready, and quite frankly, they're both the same, um, if we're doing our job right, where we have a lot of growth um, is around um, kind of a viable economic future around strong workforce skill sets, which are the same skill sets to actually get into um, post-secondary education. So there's a heck of a good infrastructure in there. It's just not for all kids at the moment. Can I ask you a quick question before we sure. flip to the audience again? How do you know what the workforce needs uh, of tomorrow are? Do, well, I'm not sure that Rand <laughs> oh, knows. Oh, uh, I, think so Rand, I'm, I'm, I think Rand McKinsey have contributed enormously to at least the global set of both entry and skills needed to be viable in a global economy. I mean, there's, the debate is done about countries in, in, in this world who are actually beating the pants off of us um, and why. So for us, I am far more concerned not about what kids need to know to get there, and that is how financially are they going to get that access when they leave public education, uh, K-12 education. Deeply worried about that issue. That pipeline narrows enormously around the issue of access, not necessarily what gives you access. We have time for one last audience questions here in the center. Uh, I loved hearing what you said about um, your ideas for reform and innovation, and it's very um, forward-thinking, and I would love to see this happen. But in, face, uh, in, the, in light of our budget crisis, our absolute crisis, and you know, LA Unified facing, uh, what is it, $480 million next year and um, ongoing, and there's trumped-up expectations for improved performance with a quickly eroding amount of uh, budget to 
right. uh, create those things. How do you see this happening? Um, in terms of the magnet program, there's rumors that 90% of the budget will be cut for the magnet programs, which typically outperform neighborhood schools. And so we have this catastrophe of the it's budget. Not a rumor. And then you have these trumped-up expectations yep. of how to improve performance. So how right. do you see that happening? Uh, so uh, I offered the board and the public insight about a way that we don't have to have actually any of those cuts except for the cuts for the federal Title I, which is going away permanently, which is a fraction of the budget issue. I offered a plan to our labor unions for which we could have full employment, no unemployment, and return the school year back. Now, it's a tough choice, but actually it's a far better choice for long-term sustainability. One is, I'll own this, I don't, people we can disagree on this, demand that Sacramento put on the ballot and allow the public to choose to extend taxes, which is $186 million for unified over five years. That is sustainable, predictable income. That leaves us with a $225 million hole. We should renegotiate the way that we fund health benefits. We currently uh, contribute a billion dollars, okay, when it's a little over a fifth of next year's budget, we should keep people having the same benefits. This is not about reduction in benefits, but that organization which controls benefits has amassed a very decent surplus. We're going to cut, in my proposal, our contribution to that, use your surplus, squeeze efficiencies, particularly out of the prescription programs, and ask employees to fractionally co-pay a portion of the premium for a period of time. Vastly economically better than being unemployed or being underemployed, or kids not coming to school uh, seven days a year. Uh, It just seems like beyond simple. Um, It is elegantly simple, um, but this is going to be an issue of will, if we can actually do this piece. So there's at least one offer as to where this can go away. Um, A second offer is how do we constantly support this work. And so in April, you'll hear amongst a series of announcements that we're going to open the Los Angeles Fund for Public Education. Yes, the school district wants money. Well, we do want money because we don't have nearly enough. In this state where we fund prisons at one level and public education at a criminally lower level, you're darn right we should have money. Next year, we will finally eclipse Mississippi if this budget is not passed in funding public education. Not good. But when we ask high-wealth individuals and we ask philanthropy and we ask individuals who can support actually at any level in business, do you want to fund L.A. public schools, the first thing I usually get is, hmm, uh, you mean L.A. unified public schools? You know, that, that organization, kind of the dark hole where it goes in, I never see it. The L.A. Fund for Public Education is going to be set up in the following way. It's going to be an endowed fund that is on a donors choose basis. So if individuals feel that they want to make a contribution for the improvement of science and science instruction, great. Don't give it to LA Unified. We're going to give it to an entirely separate entity, which will manage this very similar to the way we did the fund for public education in New York City, where we will promise you never to use your contribution, but only its interest-earning potential to fund exactly what you promised would be fund, and we will publicly give you an annual report card on the social return on that investment. And, of course, you can pull your piece if you find that this is unhappy. I think that is the way that you responsibly ask people to continue to support us over time around this. Not of us, but with us, in a very kind of public way that I feel good about what I'm giving towards, and I'm watching what's happening as a result of that piece. 
Um, universities figured that one out some time ago. Um, Rand and places like this figure that piece out. We can and will figure that piece out. And thirdly, um, it will be, I guess these are, these are the announcements. Um, and thirdly, another piece Breaking that we news. intend to do is we intend to bring Robin Hood West, um, which is uh, the branded organization. We have to ask their permission to help us do that in New York, which is the fund that raises um, hundreds of millions of dollars in only two events. And his goal is to end poverty in New York City, far more than just L.A. Uh, public schools. But we need to end poverty in Los Angeles. And there are ways that have been very successful at doing that. So, and, I, and the Robin Hood Foundation was the seed funding, if I recall correctly, for the Harlem Children's Zone. That and is gave correct. them their board and, and their future. So you, you want to create a Robin Hood of Los Angeles? Robin Hood West. Um, I've got a, a question for you as a, as a quick wrap-up, and, and I suspect it will build upon your last answer. But I, I, because I'm active um, as a volunteer um, with organizations that support uh, charter schools and other education innovation, um, I have a lot of people who ask me, um, I, I don't really think I can join a board of a charter school. Um, my kid actually doesn't even go to LA Unified Schools. I've made the decision to opt for a private education or my children are beyond school years. But I care. Um, and I'd like to do something more than just pay my property taxes. Um, but I don't know what to do. Do you want to pay a parcel tax? <laughs> I, 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 for one, yes, would be yeah. fine with doing that. Um, but but beyond beyond what what we can contribute in terms of right. our, our taxes, um, what what would you offer to someone who wants to make a difference, um, who wants to help you, and, and who wants to to help advance the vision that you've articulated? How, how do they help? Um, a couple of things. One is that when these are set up, and if you are so inclined, that is a very powerful way to financially help us. I actually don't want to talk about the financial piece any longer. I want to talk about a very different piece. I can assure everybody in this room, you cannot imagine the power of what would happen if half of this room showed up at a policy debate with the Board of Education and, and just simply went to the microphone and said, I actually want this vote on this issue. I do pay my taxes, I do this, I do that, and I actually want you as my elected official, the strength of the argument for reform votes is never heard. All you actually hear are the usual 12 voices, which are, you know, hell no, uh, you know, and, and they're usually affiliated with a special interest group. The flipping of that dynamic takes but a half hour of time and is remarkably powerful. There is no voice in Los Angeles that actually is demanding the types of things that I think kids deserve. There, it, it isn't there. An occasional letter to the editor, please. Okay? I mean, no disrespect to the LA Times, but the, the, the notion of how that media actually affects the thing, we're way beyond that at the moment. Um, so the investment in, in, in public advocacy is a very important piece. So we will expect to see you all uh, down at Beaudry Street. It's t Tuesday night at, uh, t Tuesday afternoon at, uh, what, what time did the meeting start? Every Tuesday we would love to have you. <laughs> well, let me just do three things thank you now very at, much. This, at this point. First, uh, thank Lindsay and John Daisy. Thank you. Second, I just wanted to say that we have a, a, some material, RAND material uh, outside, and so on your way out, uh, related to the issues that uh, Dr. Daisy and Lindsay discussed, and uh, please pick, 
pick that up if you're interested. And finally, I wanted to point out this, of course, is one of a series of events that we have. Our next one is in April, and there's a card, I think, on everybody's chair. It's Admiral Thad Allen, who works at RAND in Washington. Uh, people, I think, remember him as the former commandant uh, of the Coast Guard and the National Incident Commander for actually many different events. So he'll be here in April, and you see the one in, in May. Please uh, sign up if you're not already on our list. So thank you, John. Thank you, Lindsay. And thanks for everyone who participated. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.